and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word, the beauty of it, the challenge of it to us, Lord. We see in our own hearts how we act so much like the Jerusalem crowd, how we act like the Galilean pilgrims. And so often, Lord, we want you to be something that we want you to be, and through it we miss who you really are. So we pray that you would help us, Lord. Help us to see the beauty of who you are and what you've done, what you're saying to us here, so that we might adore you, Lord, so that we might worship you with abandon. Lord, give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Uh, A couple years ago, there was a movement called the Occupy Wall Street movement. Like five years ago, it was a popular movement meeting of the people, and they took over the center, they took over Zuccotti Park, which was in the center of the American economic world, which really in America means the center of American life, because economics is tied into everything we do, and in the hopes of making these radical changes and empowering the powerless... Of course, the comfortable establishment, the wealthy, they, were, they put an end to that eventually. But for a little while, the protesters held the park and, and the ruling elite were unable to oust them because of the multitude that were working together. We just saw pretty much the same thing happen at the Dakota Pipeline uh, a long time ago in 1989, a long time ago for us now, that, that same thing on a huge scale happened in Tiananmen Square when a million Chinese students took over the central heartbeat of communist China and, and demanded reforms for the empowerment of people. And they held it for a little while before the government swept in and massacred them and killed uh, probably a thousand people and ran them out. And uh, another similar takeover like this happened in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. A lot of similarities. I picked Matthew's version of this for Palm Sunday because it gives us the best, I think, chronological sweep of all the events that happened during Occupy Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, which we now know as Palm Sunday. I think some of the movies we watch makes it seem like an insignificant event. Jesus, 20 or 30 guys, a donkey coming in the back gate. No one really notices them, but nothing could be further from the truth. This was a huge event. Uh, It was no small affair. Jesus and his followers came into the city in force. They took over 
and occupied the temple precincts. They threw out the corrupt operations of big worship and they restored it as a place of healing and joyful, unhindered, childlike worship and they set up shop there for almost a week doing just that, teaching. And the, and the ruling elite, for a little while, couldn't do anything about it because there were the multitudes with him. And so for a while, at least, it looked very triumphant. But we all know how the story ends. In a sense, of course, in a sense it was triumphant. This event leads to the cross, which leads to the resurrection, which is God's victory over death through Christ. And so, in a very real sense, it is the most triumphant beginning of an, of an event in the history of the world, in the history of the universe. But the irony is that um, not any of those people that wasn't at all what anyone was thinking during that jubilation. They were also fixated on, on what they wanted out of Jesus, of what they wanted him to be, that they really, everyone missed who he really was. For the cultural elite, for the ruling Jerusalem, cultural elite inside the city, they wanted, they needed Jesus to be an insignificant religious figure because... They wanted to keep their power, really. And for the Galilean multitudes coming inside from the outside, they wanted, they needed Jesus to be their warlord to help them to get some power. And the one thing that both groups have in common is that the real Jesus was nothing that they wanted, even though he was everything they needed. And so that is really the big idea of this passage. The one main thing that Matthew wants us to know, the thesis of the passage is this, is that Jesus was nothing that we wanted, but he is everything we need to the praise of his glorious name. Jesus was nothing that we wanted, but he is everything we need to the praise of his glorious name. Let's write that down one piece at a time. First, Jesus was nothing that we wanted. Look at verse 7. And so after they had, Jesus had made all these arrangements and sent his disciples out to do this, they brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. To get what's happening here, we have to understand that there's two groups of people in the picture. I think a lot of times we gloss over this and just think Jerusalem or Jews or Israel. That's not, that's not true. There's the Jerusalem cultural elite inside the city, and the second group is the Galilean pilgrims who are coming into the, into the city for the feast. And to the Jerusalem ruling elite, the Galilean pilgrims, the Galileans, were basically foreigners. They were like Jews 
Yes, but they were like Jews from another country, not even the same. They were from the backwaters. And so for the ruling elite, um, at this time there was no king in Jerusalem. The Herodian kings were no longer over Jerusalem, although they were over Galilee. They were ruled directly by the Romans, and they had a good deal with the Romans. They had peace, they had prosperity, they had comfort, they had wealth, and the last thing in the world they needed was some yokel from Galilee to come in and mess things up. And so Jesus needed to be an insignificant religious figure. But to the Galileans, the Galileans were much different. They were not powerful. They did not have the same deal with the Romans. There was a lot of poverty out in the sticks and in the country. And even though Jesus deliberately picks this symbol of of riding on a colt, a donkey's foal in humility and meekness out of all the Old Testament, this is what he picks to show what's going on. Even though that's how he comes into the city the Galileans still acclaim him as their warlord. How do we know that? They spread their cloaks on the ground, which is what the ancient Israelites did for King Jehu, who was one of the most brutal kings in all of Israel's history. His mandate was basically, kill all the other guys. And he did. And they took palm branches and they waved them, which was true, what the tradition for Israelites to do, for, for conquering kings who had, who had vanquished the overruling foreign powers from Jerusalem and from the temple. It happened twice within the last 400 years or so, and both times they waved palm branches. It became such a symbol of the conquering king that it was on their coins for 150 years, the palm branch symbolizing conquering victory. And why? Because that's what they needed, right? They don't have power. They are under the yoke of foreign power. They just want somebody to come in and fix their economy and secure their borders and bring Israel back to the glory days of the Davidic kingdom. And Jesus is the guy that's going to make it happen. And so they latch onto him. Now, In the point, I said Jesus was nothing that we wanted, all-inclusive, because we're all all guilty of, of really probably both these things. But maybe some of you, some of you need Jesus to be an insignificant religious leader. Despite some things that you may know about him that are troubling, some things that bother your conscience, but you're pretty much able to keep him under the rug... You've got a few facts at your ready disposal that will forever eliminate the potential for him to be any more than that. Why? Because if Jesus is more than that, if Jesus really is who he claims to be, that means that life is going to change. Just like the elites in, in, in Jerusalem, they had their money, they had their power, they had everything they wanted, they were living the good life, and they did not want to give that up. In my own life, before I came to Jesus... I was raised in the church, even though I knew better, even though I knew about who Jesus was and I knew some good arguments for the faith, when it came down to it, what I thought I had to have to be okay was a certain combination of money, sex, power, fame, 
reputation in the world, and if I didn't have those things, that I would be miserable and alone and crushed. And I knew that Jesus meant that he was going to change my heart and those things would slowly go away and I didn't want to let go of them, even though I knew better, which is crazy. These guys knew better. They were the ones who knew the scriptures. They were the ones who knew the prophets, even though they knew better. And Jesus, in one of his parables, calls them out. Parable of the vineyard, he says, this is the son, let's kill him so we can have the inheritance, saying, you know who I am, but you're going to kill me anyways because you want my inheritance. You want your fame. You want your power. And some of you, maybe all of you, probably all of you, all of us, in some way, shape, or form, we want Jesus to be our warlord to fix what is wrong with life. Amen? You know, the brutal truth, as I was thinking about this, I didn't write it down, but the brutal truth is this is one of those other things that we go back and forth on. Boom. There's one part of our lives we put up some, put walls up. Jesus can't come in here. This is mine. And then there's this other part over here on the same day, in the same breath. Jesus, I need you to fix this stuff over here because this is stuff I need you to fix. I need you to give me power in this stuff but that doesn't mean that you get any of this, right? I think, um, I mean, that's the reality. We, I mean, nationally, the church, the American church is in convulsion fits right now because we're afraid that losing cultural prestige means that we won't be okay. And so there are huge parts of the church that are fighting tooth and nail to retain Jesus as our warlord in the culture. But what if we've made cultural prestige an idol? What if we've abused it and hurt people? What if God is stripping that from us, from our own good, to strengthen us as the church, not the political arm? Even personally, I mean, we all struggle with that personally, right? We have this disconnect, I see, I see it in my life all the time, between my systematic theology, what I believe to be true about God in my head, and my practical theology, what I really live out in my everyday life, how I actually act, which sometimes is a better indicator of what you really believe than what you say in the conversation that where you know, you, you know what you're supposed to say, right? We all know, we're Presbyterians. We know what we're supposed to say. But when it comes down to it, I want Jesus to be my warlord. I need, I, need, I need this relationship. I need you to get it. I need this amount of money to be okay. I need this station in life to feel secure. I need on and on, you can just name it. I need you to make this happen for me or I won't be okay, but that's... That's not the Christian life. Christian life is trial under God's protection and strength to build our character in sanctification to be more like Jesus. That's the blessing. That's the promise. The promised food, clothing, period, and sanctification in the New Testament, really. 
I was just talking with a friend of mine, and he was so mad at God because he wasn't as far advanced in life as he thought he should be by this point. And he had all the, all the variables of why that was happening. But ang- basically angry at God. Why? Because God had failed to be his warlord and make his life happen according to his plan. Same thing we see here. But what's, I mean, what's the big, the big bummer about that? The problem is that all of those things, just like the Jerusalem crowd, just like the Galilean pilgrims, some of those things that we desperately want to force Jesus to be for us are the very things that distract us and blind us to the real beauty of who he is and what he's really doing in our lives, which causes us to be angry instead of worshipful. So, who is he and what is he doing? Good question. Point two. Point one, Jesus was nothing that we wanted. Point two, but he is everything that we need. Look at verse four and five. This is right after the whole donkey thing. Jesus rides in on the donkey after the disciples set it up for him. And it says at verse four, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, despite how everybody around him is taking it, Matthew wants us to know that Jesus has deliberately orchestrated these events to show us the reality. And the quotations that that Matthew uses in this passage are the official commentary of what's happening here, except it's a commentary that was written a thousand years before it actually happened. Matthew says this is what's going on, and he's using these quotes to draw our minds back to these passages to say what's happening here? Look what the Old Testament prophesies, and that is the official apostolic interpretation of what's happening. And the first... Is, Zach, is from Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. It says this. This is the most obvious one, the first and the most obvious one. It says this. This is the whole, the whole passage. And remember, when the, Hebrew, when, the, when the New Testament quotes an Old Testament prophecy or, or quotation, it's a hyperlink back to the whole passage. Back then, people had memorized huge chunks of Bible. So when they said one line, they expected everybody to go back and look at that line in context. If you didn't memorize it, for us, we have the Bible now, and you have your smartphone, so here we go. Zechariah 9, 9, and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule, his rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Yes, this is the messianic king. But he's not here to gauge in war on the nations. He's here to make peace with the nations, to break the implements of warfare and to bring the nations in 
to the covenant and his rule will be universal. Second passage. This one's not as obvious because it's a composite. A composite means a bunch of Old Testament prophecies strung together. And the first line of the prophecy that Matthew gives us when he says, say to the daughter of Zion, that is from another prophecy in Isaiah chapter 62. He's putting the ideas together. He wants us to know that this is part of the deal. This is part of who Jesus is. So this is what Isaiah said. Listen to this. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. What can I even add to that? Really, I mean, the beauty of Christ is that he has brought not salvation from economic disaster, not salvation from a bad relationship, not salvation from the threat of borders or any other thing. The beauty of Jesus is that he has brought the salvation of God, which is eternal life. And the reward of eternal life, which goes far beyond this little tainted cesspool that we all fight over. And we in this are called the holy people, set apart for God, set apart in holiness for God's purposes. We belong to him. And it's not that we sought God out even, but that he has sought us out. The coming of Christ, Matthew wants us to know for sure, is that what this means is that God has come for you to bring you in, to set you apart, to redeem you so that you will know that you are not forsaken. And the third one, the third Old Testament quotation, it's weaving in and out through the whole text. It's one of the most quoted of all prophetic texts in the New Testament because of how clear It is about who Jesus is, and it's Psalm 118. We've already read it twice today in the call to worship and in the gospel. But here, hear it again, knowing its it's relationship to Jesus walking into the city of Jerusalem to do what he came to do. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and you have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, 
give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Now, you can see why that's such a popular New Testament verse. It's so clear about about Jesus, about the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone, the first stone of the new creation that levels and makes true everything else. We're called to rejoice in this day of salvation that God has made. Uh, Hosanna, save us, Lord, save us, Lord, the, the salvation of God, praying for God to bring salvation to us. And then there's this weird line at the end that almost seems a little bit out of place that says, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Now, scholars have a difficult time with this. There's, it's a hard verse to translate. Um, it's pretty clear what it says, although it, there's no account really of of the sacrificial animal being bound to the horns of, of the altar. The horns of the altars were the posts that came out of the edges of all the altars. So they're trying to figure out what is the, what's the significance of the historical background to this. And I think maybe the solution is that if this is a prophetic event or a prophetic account of the so-called triumphal entry, and it is, and it's also telling us about the purpose of the entry. What is Christ coming to do? What if the altar of sacrifice wasn't the altar in the temple in this case, but instead the altar was a cross outside the city gates? And then it makes a lot of sense. Bind the festal sacrifice to the horns of the altar. What that means is is that even though nobody knew what was going on, the Jerusalem elite are trying to just kill him, to get rid of him, because he's a problem. The Galileans think he's their great national hope. But Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus knows that this isn't so much of a triumphal entry as it is a presentation of the festal sacrifice. And he goes on from there straight to the temple. And we know from John's gospel, we went through it a little while ago, that John puts the cleansing of the temple right at the beginning of his gospel for, for theological reasons. But I believe, a lot of scholars believe that this is when the cleansing happened. In John's gospel, Jesus is presenting himself as the true temple. There's no more need for this because the true temple is now here. And that's true. But Matthew gives us a little bit different view. Pan camera. And he shows us that after Jesus has declared who he really is and what he's really come to do, and he showed us through those old prophecies, he cleanses the temple by kicking out what we would call all the, all the corrupt operations of big worship. All the people that were there in the temple that were there to manipulate God into getting what they wanted by, buy, by buying these animals and sacrificing them to make God do what they wanted. 
which is basically magic. That's not worship. And Jesus comes in and he kicks all of those guys out. And instead of big worship, the business of worship as usual, he kicks them out and he replaces them with this big crowd of people that he's just healed and a bunch of kids yelling praises in the temple. It's almost borderline chaos. Can you see it? Can you see it in your mind? And you know why I think he did that? Because he wants us to know that real worship, heartfelt, grateful worship, the kind of worship that God desires is not worship to get something from God, but it, it is the heartfelt, grateful worship. It's the natural response of the broken heart that knows it has been healed. That's what worship comes from. Do we know that? We're Presbyterian, we know that. Do we do that? Do we show that? Do we show that? Now, there's a certain sense when we need to be respectful, being in the presence of God. But then there's another impulse that causes us to want to make worship respectable, and that can be a problem. Sometimes I wonder if in the middle of that temple, a thousand people that have been blind and been lame, they've just been healed, Jesus, the crowds are shouting, these kids are running around everywhere yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, everybody's got their hands up and praising. I wonder what we would do if we were there. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. Praise to the Lord God Almighty for his healing work to us. Amen? Jesus was nothing that we wanted, but he is everything we need to the praise of his glorious grace. Look at verse 15. Now when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. I was reading this this week, kept thinking about those kids. Those little kids running around just shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Our kids, when we tell them we're going to Chick-fil-A, in the car, the three of them together start shouting, Chick-fil-A! 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 So loud, we could hardly drive the car. Have you ever heard a group, a classroom of kids, they're all chanting something together? It's like a roar. 
and it's one of the happiest noises on the face of the earth. <laughs> These kids, they just saw a bunch of miracles. They don't know any better. No one's ever told them that worship's supposed to be respectable. They're just praising God at the top of their lungs, and Jesus, I'll guarantee it, is sitting there smiling at them. Just like he's smiling at us right now. And then, dun, 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 shift camera. Here come the bad guys. Here come the villains. Here come the know-it-alls. Flowing robes and advanced degrees. They know everything there is to know about respectable worship, and they are appalled. They are indignant. Indignant means morally outraged. These men are morally outraged that a thousand people have just had their sight restored. Think about that for a minute. How do you get there? How do you get there? I don't know. Well, we do know. We do know well. We do know how you get there. Well, what are they upset about? They're upset partly of the chaos. They're partly upset about these undesirables that Jesus has brought into the temple without authorization. These blind and these crippled people, basically a bunch of homeless people Jesus brought in, causing problems. Can't have that. But mostly they're mad about the kids. They're mad about what the kids are saying. And so... um, they call to Jesus, really the question that they ask him is really a demand. They're saying, make them stop. And Jesus, his answer, which is really the best part of this whole thing, he says, he says they say, have you heard, do you hear what they're saying? And he says, yeah, I hear what they're saying. And they're, what they're saying is true. And he says to them, have you never read these men who had memorized the Old Testament? <laughs> Have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise? Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. He's quoting Psalm 8. Psalm 8 in the rabbinic culture of the time was very much thought to be a commentary on Exodus chapter 15, verse 2, which is right after, it's the song of Moses, right after Israel, the children, all the people of Israel have been rescued and they've been brought through that's the sea of chaos, waters of death, and brought to the other side of the Red Sea. They had been given salvation, deliverance from slavery to Egypt. And as they sat there at the end of the day with the sun going down on the banks of the Red Sea, they sang this song to God. And the rabbis believed that this verse was really actually sung by children in praise of God for his salvific power, saving them from the slavery of Egypt. And so here's what Jesus is saying to them, these learned men who had memorized the Old Testament. He's saying, he's saying, yeah, I hear what they're saying. But you know what it means? You know what they're really saying? What they're saying is that just as the children in Moses' day praise God for his deliverance from the slavery of Egypt, these children 
are praising me for my deliverance from the slavery of sin and death. The new exodus. And then he dropped the mic and he walked out. (laughs) Best exit in the New Testament. So concluding all of this, let's tie these threads together. What does this mean to us? What do we learn from all this? Number one, the real Jesus is better than the Jesus that we want him to be. The real Jesus is always better than the Jesus we want him to be. And the danger in that is that sometimes who we want him to be so badly can distract us and blind us to the absolute beauty of who he really is. Number two, in those moments of distraction, the answer is not to be mad at God for not coming through with your plan, but instead is to get quiet and refocus on the beauty and the permanence and the glory of the salvation that he has given us that we are now in current possession of and the blindness that he has healed us from. And then... The more we focus on that, the more we focus on the real Jesus, what he's really done, what the real benefits of the covenant are, the more heartfelt and more grateful, the more borderline inappropriate our worship is going to be. And it'll fill up all the moments of our days. And we will be able to live a life of vibrant worship full of gratitude and glorifying God and not get so caught up sweating the small stuff. Amen? Okay. So let's all worship Jesus like a bunch of kids going crazy so that we can go out into the broken world and bring people in for this healing that he's given us. Father, we thank you for all of your beautiful blessings, the astonishing word that you've taught us today. We thank you that your word is living and active and powerful and that we're just not learning things about you but that your blessing and your power and your spirit are actively working in us, producing that of which it speaks. So Lord, as we approach the table where all this is sealed to us in symbols representing the beauty of Christ and the gospel, Lord, we pray that you would help us to not sweat the little things. We pray that you would help us to not make up Jesuses that aren't really Jesus. And we pray that you would fill us full of heartfelt wonder and worship so that we would be inappropriate in our worship of you here and in the world. That when we spoke of you, the praise that would come out of our mouth would be so compelling and beautiful that it would, be, it would do justice to who you are. And Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.